Now let's turn in our Bibles to the gospel according to John, and we're reading today in John chapter 18. I think if you're using a church Bible, it may be on page 1086. John chapter 18, I want to read two sections here from verse 15 to verse 18, and then from verse 25 to verse 27. Jesus has been arrested, and uh, he has been uh, faced with the uh, patriarch of the high priests, Caiaphas, um, was the high priest. His father-in-law had essentially been sacked years before, but was the power behind the throne still. And so Jesus is first of all taken to uh, Annas, And then Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You're also not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I'm not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Pick up at verse 24 as the connecting link, Annas then sent Jesus bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I'm not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once a rooster crowed. Now we've been going back and forwards a little through John's gospel, but for this period we're in John 18 and John 19, and perhaps I can begin with a little intelligence test. You know those intelligence tests that give you three pieces of information and ask you to make the connection to the fourth The titles of the sermons for the next three Sundays are He Suffered Under Pontius Pilate, next week, the week after was crucified, and the week after was dead and buried. So the connecting link should be he's talking about the Apostles' Creed. Those are words taken directly from the ancient creed of the Christian church. But this whole section begins not with the apostles' creed, but with the apostles' denial. And it's a hugely significant event in the story of the Gospels. We know that because it's one of the few events that we have in the first three Gospels that John, the writer of the fourth Gospel, actually includes. And that tells you that was significant 
for every one of the early Christian churches throughout the Roman Empire, and it was particularly significant for John to be able to tell the story, the story, doubtless, of the lowest point, but an essential point in the life of Simon Peter. And it's told here, obviously, because there are details here we don't find elsewhere in the other Gospels. It's told here from the perspective of this other disciple, who I suspect was probably the author of the Gospel, the same person who is referred to as the beloved disciple, and whom the church throughout the ages has tended to think was the Apostle John. And I want us briefly this morning to think about four dimensions of this tragic experience in the life of Simon Peter. Of course, we know the conclusion because we've already had from Craig Anderson the sermon on John chapter 21, but that should not blind us to the terrible seriousness of what we have just read in John chapter 18. And so, first of all, I want us to understand that Peter's denial was not trivial. We must never allow the fact that Peter was forgiven and restored to render trivial the heinousness of what he does here in these verses. And I say that because Peter knew that Jesus had said that whoever denies him before men will be denied before the angels of heaven. So, if we know the Gospels, we want to crawl into a corner and hide ourselves in a bundle as we think of this horrific event in the life of Simon Peter and probably the implications that that has for ourselves. But we also ought to notice not only how serious this was for Simon Peter, but how awful it must have been for the Lord Jesus. Uh, last time we were in this chapter, we noticed the technique that John uses, the kind of old black and white uh, Western movie, you know, there they are fighting uh, outside, surrounding the wagons, and then the sign on the screen says, back at the ranch. And in that old-fashioned way, uh, these people were doing two things. One was they were slowing down the action, and the other was they were heightening the tension because you want to know what happens next. And then, interestingly, in John chapter 18, the two events, Jesus being tried by the high priests, Peter denying Jesus, Jesus witnessing his good confession, Jesus seeing his disciple deny him. And that's where the link that John provides in verse 24 is actually very significant. Peter has denied Jesus once. He's now standing warming himself at the fire, and Annas then sent Jesus bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. And it looks as though all that meant was that Jesus was being moved from one part of the family compound of the high priest to another part, and so the two stories intersect. And Jesus and Simon Peter are here 
in the courtyard simultaneously. Now, you kind of are able to work that out from the way in which John structures the narrative, but the other gospel writers make it quite clear that this is the right way to read this passage, because they tell us that when Peter had denied the Lord Jesus, he turned around, and, and there was Jesus standing, looking at him, seeing one another face to face, eye to eye. So that in one sense, this is Peter's greatest failure, and what it produces is, in another sense, Jesus' greatest humiliation, because this is his lead disciple. If you read through the New Testament from beginning to end and mark every single occasion when the apostles are mentioned in a group, whether that be a group of three or a group of twelve, the first name that always appears is Simon Peter's. So, in a sense, this is not just one of those hidden disciples. This is, this is the disciple that all of the other disciples appear to have given themselves second place in connection with. He's always the one who speaks for them. He's always the one who speaks about their faithfulness and what Jesus means to them. And uh, you, can almost, you can almost hear an echo of his denial in the way in which in the second and third denials they say to him almost sneeringly, so you're obviously not one of his disciples if you live and speak and deny like that. And it heightens the aloneness of Jesus that he had spoken to them earlier on in chapter 13, verse 33. He said, where I'm going, you will not be able to come. The psalm that is most quoted in the New Testament in connection with the crucifixion of Jesus is Psalm 69. And in Psalm 69, these words are, as it were, placed on the lips of the Lord Jesus. I looked for pity, and there was none. And I looked for comfort, and there was none. And what, in a way, was the lowest point of Simon Peter's discipleship? actually caused what in some ways must have been the loneliest moment in Jesus' passion. Even at His cross, there were disciples who were there. But here, He is utterly alone. And it highlights what Christians have often realized, uh, like Cecil Francis Alexander in a children's hymn, there was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He needed to be alone to do this. He only could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in. So, Peter's failure was not trivial. Secondly, Peter's failure was not a surprise. At least, it certainly wasn't a surprise to Jesus. Back in chapter 13, verses 36 to 38, when uh, Peter had said that he would never leave Jesus, he would always follow Jesus, I will lay down my life for you. 
Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. So Jesus was not taken by surprise. How did Jesus know this? I think it's too easy, really, to say, well, He was God and He knows everything. Because Jesus never slides a little bit of Godness into His humanity in the course of His ministry. Everything He does as the God-man, He does in His humanity, because everything He does, He does for us. It's God acting in our humanity, and I think this was… Do you know how sometimes we meet people and we just have a sense about them? Sense there's something wrong? We discern something. We don't have the confidence to say, you know, I can tell you what's wrong with you, but we just sense. And we have differing degrees of that, don't we? I've met people who, who seem to be able to see right into other people's hearts. And I think it's possible that because our Lord Jesus was absolutely sinless, His sensitivity to the sinfulness of others must have been extraordinary. I mean, think about this trivial illustration. Uh, you don't smoke cigarettes or pipes or you don't vape or you don't do any of these things, and you walk out the department store into the street and you hold your breath and you run, and uh, the people who are standing there don't smell anything. But you're almost asphyxiated. You go into, a, you, you go into a, an elevator and there's somebody coming up from the ground floor and you can, if you, don't, if you live in a smoke-free zone, you immediately think, and he doesn't have his thing with him or his things with him. He's just standing there. But it feels as though the elevator is just filled with the, the, the stuff. Think about that in the Lord Jesus coming into a sinful world as one who is sinless. None of us can measure this. But think of the sensitivity to sin there must have been in Jesus. Think about His understanding of human nature. What we might call having a hunch about somebody, Jesus had to an extraordinary degree. In any case, Peter had already shown the telltale signs of collapse, hadn't he? In the other Gospels, we're told some of those telltale signs. And we'll see the telltale signs in this Gospel. But I want you to notice what this underlines to us. In contrast to what we often hear said today, sometimes, alas, also by Christian people, Jesus loves me just the way I am which really is ordinarily a sign, don't even think about calling me to change. Jesus, my friends, doesn't love you just the way you are. He does not love you just the way you are. But rather, it's because He loves you that He plans to change you from what you are into what He wants you to be. And actually, we'd already this in the the beginning of the gospel, first time that uh, we see an encounter between Jesus and Simon Peter in John's gospel, he says to you, uh, he says to Simon Peter, you're Simon, but I'm going to turn you into 
Peter. And as we'll see, this was part of that work of the Lord Jesus in his life. So that while his failure was not trivial, his failure was not a surprise to the Lord Jesus. That's really something, actually, that in the other Gospels we are told very clearly that Peter held on to, that what had happened was not a surprise to Jesus. The third thing to notice is that his failure was not sudden. I know it looks as though it was sudden, like it was the, you know, if you'd bumped into him, he was, I don't know what came over me. It was just something happened in the moment. But it wasn't at all sudden. You know, every 10 years or so, you'll see on the news some house that's on the edge of a cliff and, the, you know, it's about to collapse into the sea. And your, your instinct is to think, what are they doing living there? And uh, then you realize, well, they've been living there for 50 years. And they haven't noticed that the sea has been coming in minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day, month by month, year by year, decade by decade. And it's eaten away the cliff. So it's happening to the Montrose Golf Course, isn't it? And that's what happened to Simon Peter. His life had been punctuated by by these moments when the sea had made an enormous ingress into his life. And so this was not surprising to Jesus, and it wasn't really sudden in his life. And there are actually little telltale signs in John's gospel that are a wee bit different. Uh, in John's gospel, in chapter 13, you remember when Jesus comes to wash his feet, what does he say? Never. We want to put Peter in the corner and put the dunce's hat on him and tell him to face the wall for saying never to Jesus. How dare you do that? How dare I do that? When I reflect on the number of times I've said never to Jesus, perhaps even this last week, and it's the, it's the sea coming in and of course, in the moment, I'll be fine. But you know, anyone who's been a minister for any length of time knows how untrue that is, because they've seen so many people who in the moment, like Simon Peter, have not been fine. And earlier in chapter 13, at the end, he told Jesus he would lay down his life for him. The man had given no evidence whatsoever that that was a promise that he would fulfill. And then when Jesus was arrested, there was this other moment that, that was a telltale sign that he had no poise in the crisis, but only panic in the crisis when he cut off the ear of the high priest's servant that came back to haunt him in this narrative. Well, what does this tell you? I think it tells you a couple of things. The first is that Peter didn't really understand Jesus. Here he was in a situation of overwhelming temptation, and Jesus had warned him that it was coming. He'd warned him a few hours ago that it was coming. He didn't understand himself. So he neither trusted Jesus, nor did he know his own weakness. 
I don't want to turn this into a five-point sermon because of another point to come. But I also tend to think that the Lord knew that Simon Peter needed this if he was ever going to be any use to him, there needed to be a disaster in his life. I don't mean by that that if you're going to be any use to Jesus, there needs to be a disaster in your life, although sometimes it helps. What I'm saying is that Jesus knew this was what Simon Peter needed. And I say that because Jesus had masterminded this whole situation. If He had prophesied it, He knew it was going to happen, and it was part of His understanding of God's purposes, because this man, if he was going to be any use to Jesus in the future, needed to realize a problem in his life that he didn't know he had. And what was it? You know, this particular problem, the thing is, the people who have it are often the last people either to recognize it or confess it, but the people around them know they've got it. So, what was his problem? His problem was that he was unusually gifted. And he was a bit like King Isaiah, you remember, who, uh, when he grew strong, he also grew proud. And everything he says is an expression of his own self-sufficiency. It's an expression of his own self-sufficiency. And his sense that his own strength and his own unusual gifts would carry him through. Everyone else may leave you, Jesus, but I'm not that kind of person. I know it because of the gifts I've got. But what he didn't realize was that self-sufficiency is, uh, is pride. And resting on the gifts that you have is not the same thing as experiencing the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. I sometimes wish every Christian in the world who foolishly contributes to so many false teachers would realize there's a massive difference between having gifts and having grace. And people with discernment can readily tell the difference, but people who rest on their gifts usually don't. I suspect more men in the ministry of the gospel have fallen because they have rested on their giftedness while their lives have been evacuated of the grace of God. I remember somebody telling me that Ernest Kevin, who was the first principal of what was the London Bible College, always told his students, and this applies to whatever ministry we're engaged in, that the single greatest danger in the ministry of Christ is pride. Pride. And what strikes you about Simon Peter is that since the Lord was going to turn him into a rock, since the Lord was going to open the floodgates of the gospel message to the Jews and then to the Gentiles through this man, 
He needed to be deconstructed. He needed to be dismantled. Jesus could not let this continue in Peter's life if Peter were going to be the one who would preach the gospel as he did on the day of Pentecost. So, Peter's failure was not trivial. His failure was not a surprise. His failure was not sudden. But thank God his failure was not final. But I said at the beginning we shouldn't take this for granted for this reason. If you had been in Jerusalem that night, just kind of somewhere around the the temple area, and you had bumped into Judas Iscariot and Simon Peter, I have very serious doubts that you would have been able to say, Judas Iscariot is destined for the darkness, and Simon Peter is somebody who's going to be saved. Or to put it in the modern terms, Judas Iscariot has committed apostasy. Peter is just backsliding. Because the beginning of apostasy is backsliding. And it's not, it's not possible to imagine. I could easily have told the difference between these two men because the difference did not really lie in anything that they were in themselves. Yes, Judas had betrayed him, but friend Simon Peter had denied the Lord who was about to buy him with his precious blood on the cross. So wherein lay the difference? Well, again, John puts it in different ways. The the other gospel writers tell us that Jesus actually said to Peter, you're going to be sifted like wheat by Satan, but I've prayed for you. And John doesn't tell us any of that. If you'd been a first reader of of John's gospel, you wouldn't have, have had the other gospels. You wouldn't have known that. So what hope does John's gospel give for Simon Peter? Well, there are some little indications. For example, when Peter had refused Jesus, you'll never wash my feet. Jesus had said to him, Peter, you have no idea what I'm doing now, but afterwards you'll understand. That's the grace of the Lord Jesus, the possibility of an afterwards. And then it's rather wonderful that Jesus, when He had cleansed the disciples' feet, had told them they were all clean. That is, they were all His, except one. And He was obviously referring to Judas Iscariot. And in chapter 17, he had prayed for the eleven who were left in the upper room after Judas had gone out, that the Father would keep them even when the evil one sought to destroy them. And so, as readers of John's gospel, we've got hope. We've got hope for Simon Peter, but not because of anything in Simon Peter but because of the regenerating work of the Lord Jesus in his heart, because of the intercession of the Lord Jesus to sustain him. And that, of course, led to his marvelous restoration, which is surely one of the greatest stories anywhere to be found in the gospel narratives. But the the restoration was an undoing, wasn't it? 
uh, those little telltale signs in, in John's gospel, the, the fire that appears on the beach, the fact that Jesus asks him essentially the same question three times, the one who had denied him three times. Do you know, we, sh- we, 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 can, we can never take the forgiveness of our sins lightly, my dear friends, for this reason, that as Jesus forgave Simon Peter, it hurt him profoundly. Because Jesus was like the surgeon saying, it may hurt, but it will cure. And so, this terrible event that actually is the preparation in Peter's life for the infilling of the Holy Spirit that took place on the day of Pentecost in his life and afterwards, Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. You see, the whole point is, that you can only be filled with the Spirit of that which is emptied of Simon Peter. And Simon Peter is being emptied here right down to the bottom of his life in grace. And there are all kinds of lessons. Am I relying on my natural giftedness and lost consciousness of my natural weakness? Do I still have this deep down pride and self-assurance that I am gifted to do this? Is there something the Lord wants to do in my life that there is a deep down response that says anything? But never that. Let me close with a poem that uh, I remember landing by heart when I was a teenager because it came to mean so much to me, by Amy Carmichael. Those of you who are over 50 know who Amy Carmichael was, famous missionary lady in India. She wrote poetry, and this one entitled, Hast Thou No Scar? Hast Thou No Scar? No hidden scar on foot or side or hand. I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail thy bright ascendant star. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archers, spent, leaned me against a tree to die, and rent by ravening beasts that compassed me, I swooned. Hast thou no wound? No wound, no scar. Yet as the master shall the servant be, and pierced are the feet that follow me, but thine are whole, can he have followed far who has no wound or scar? And the wonderful thing is that Peter was here scarred for life and for usefulness. And the same may be true for you. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You that in this gospel You bring us into very bright and joyful places, and You also bring us into the courtyard of the high priest where our Lord Jesus was demeaned and despised and rejected of men and 
a man of sorrows, deeply acquainted with grief. And where, despite all that, this dear man, with whom most of us find it of all the apostles easiest to identify with, was brought into abject failure in order that he might be brought into great usefulness. We tremble, Lord, at how much you might do to us in your love. And there remains within us that awful never in our self-protectiveness, in our misunderstanding that we are safer with ourselves than we are with the Lord Jesus. Oh, we pray that as is your fatherly pleasure to speak to us in order to transform us by your Word, rather than to act upon us, to transform us by harsh providences. Oh, make us responsive, we pray, to this Word, however your Spirit applies it to each of us, that we may be emptied of self and filled with Christ, and that whatever wounds we bear, hidden from one another, may not only bear scars in the healing, but fruitfulness in the living. We thank You for the fruitfulness that we see in the lives of others who sit around us, even although we know nothing of the inside of that outside. And we pray that by Your grace, You would make us more and more fruitful, so that we may never again say never to the Lord Jesus. We pray this in His name.